And today, we'll be covering Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 through 6 on the topic of investments. As we begin then, let us begin by reading that passage, Ecclesiastes chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may, may occur on the earth. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the, upon the south toward the north. Or sorry, if the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls towards the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Sow your seed in the morning, and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening, evening sowing will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. This is the word of God. Please be seated. I don't know how skilled any of you are in the practice of day trading or anything else regarding the stock market, Wall Street. And quite honestly, that's about as far as my investment expertise goes. And naming a few key words that I hear regarding investing, investing money. Some of you, no doubt, spend a great amount of time looking at the stock market and examining the best place to invest your resources. My guess is, however, most of us don't really fall into that category. Investing just seems like this, this practice reserved for only the wealthiest amongst us. But the fact of the matter is, is that even if you have never invested any money in the stock market, all of us actively invest in a variety of things on a daily basis. That is to say, all of us actively take the resources we have, we choose a certain area to pour it into, and we hope that after pouring our resources into that given area that we might see some level of return come back. Whether that means investing financially or investing in people, investing in certain interests, we all do this. And we all like to think that we are being wise with our investments, with the resources that God has given us. As we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 11, however, we are reminded that this act of investing has a little more to it than might initially meet the eye. And if we are to be wise stewards of the things that God has given us, it is essential that we really take a step back and examine what Solomon himself says about investing, not simply financially speaking, but also ultimately that which we invest in eternity. My prayer is, is that we, as we unpack these verses today, we might walk away with a reminder that our own active investment and that which is eternal, is well worth it, both because it is your calling as a believer, but also ultimately because the results, the return, are astronomical, far greater than any investment you could find in this earth. With that being said, let's go ahead and begin our time in prayer, and we'll be examining our options, the dangers, and the confidence we can have moving forward. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for our time this morning. God, as we begin to unpack yet another chapter of Ecclesiastes, we pray for humility. We pray, God, that we might walk away with a greater appreciation of our calling as believers. Might we not see this simply as a few practical points of advice on how to play the stock market, God, but 
might we understand that this is a reminder of a responsibility every single Christian has. And so, God, might we take seriously the question of where we are investing our resources? Might we take seriously the calling that you've set before us, God? And my prayer, ultimately, is that all of us might leave here today all the more ready, all the more eager to invest in that which is ultimately eternal, and to do so to your glory, knowing ultimately that this is pleasing to you and that the results truly will be beyond our imaginations, God. As always, I pray, God, that you remove all distractions from us at this moment. Might our eyes be fixed upon your word and ultimately upon your son. God, bring those who are unsaved to a saving faith in you at this time and build up your body of believers, we pray. All according to your precious son, Jesus Christ's name, amen. As we begin our time this morning, we begin with the most basic of Solomon's encouragements. That is the encouragement to consider your options regarding our investments. And we see this immediately in our text in the verse two verses. So if you would, follow along with me once again as we begin there. Once again, Solomon begins by saying, cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know which, which, what misfortune might occur on the earth. As Solomon begins this discussion, there is some debate as to what in the world he is talking about. If you're like me, when you first read the command to cast your bread on the surface of the waters, you might be a little confused. I remember memorizing this for some unknown reason as a kid at camp. And I remember asking my camp counselor, is this talking about like, literally going down to the creek and throwing bread into the creek bed? Is Solomon telling us to go to Kapaha Park and feed the ducks immediately following the worship service? Well, no, of course he's not. No, Solomon is using imagery both in these first two verses and even later when he speaks of farming that describes the act of making investments. And I think as he does so, he's referring both to financial investments, that is, these common earthly investments that so many people like himself would be familiar with, as well as spiritual or eternal investments. The first type, that which is financial, is seen even in this language of casting your bread on the water. Again, imagery that is probably unfamiliar to most, if not all of us. And yet, in Solomon's day, this imagery would have brought to mind the idea of, of investing in international trade. Bread here referring to basic resources, perhaps money, but also agricultural resources that have been grown in your own region. And it's taking those resources, literally putting them on a boat, and sending them out to be bought, to be purchased by other markets. Solomon here is simply encouraging the person to, to really look outside their natural environment and, and see areas that might be fruitful of investment. In the same way, following on the tales of that advice, he speaks to other financial advice in verse 2 when he says, divide your portion to seven or even to eight for you do not know what misfortune might occur on the earth. Once again, if Solomon is speaking to financial investments, he is simply speaking to that which we would call today of, of, of diversifying your portfolio. The idea of lessening the risk of your investment by by pouring, uh, pouring resources, pouring uh, your money into a variety of different assets so that when misfortune comes, as he mentions, and it will come, when the wind blows the wrong way, when the rain doesn't fall where it's supposed to, well, you haven't put all your eggs in one basket. And so your resources are safe. As he speaks of both of these concepts and even of farming then, Solomon is at least in part describing that act of 
of investing your financial resources for the purpose of making more money. Of course, when we speak of this type of investments, we don't have to limit our attention simply to that which is financial in nature. I think you could use the same sort of terminology to describe any earthly investment. But the same basic strategy, the same basic advice stands, stands true. It is important to look outside your natural barriers to consider how you might divide up your portions to avoid putting all of your eggs in one basket as you seek to gain the greatest return possible. Now, if you look up a number of commentaries or at least online resources on this passage, that is about as far as a lot of people go. That is to say, there are some people that seem to genuinely think Solomon is just giving us all some, some basic advice on how to trade and how to make money. But I think that is very clearly short-sighted. And I think that based off of what Solomon has already said about gaining wealth, both in Ecclesiastes but also in other books such as Proverbs. If you would, perhaps, just turn back a few pages to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, a passage we would have covered, it seems, many moons ago. But back in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, you see one of these examples where Solomon warns about just accumulating wealth for wealth's sake. There in Ecclesiastes 5, verses 10 through 12, Solomon says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. Now, it's been quite a while since we've covered that, of course, and we don't need to go back and re-explain the passage, but you see the very straightforward thing that Solomon says about accumulating wealth. His basic point there, as it is elsewhere, is that the accumulation of wealth by itself will, will never satisfy. And so again, as we come back to Ecclesiastes chapter 11, it seems odd that Solomon's primary focus would be on financial gain, especially in light of the coming chapter in which he is speaking ultimately to judgment. It's because of this, I believe, that Solomon is not just speaking of financial investment, but he's, he's speaking of that which is spiritual. He's speaking of investing in that which is eternal. And this would not be the only place where Solomon compares money and wisdom together, or rather compares wisdom to gaining wealth. We've seen this some in Ecclesiastes, but perhaps one of the greatest examples is back in Proverbs. And so if you would turn back to Proverbs chapter 3. And you can see one of the many examples in which Solomon speaks openly of, of how valuable, truly valuable wisdom is. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, Solomon says this regarding wisdom and money. He says, How blessed is the man who finds wisdom, and the man who gains understanding for her profit, that is wisdom's profit, is better than the profit of silver. Her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand, and her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. If you read throughout the book of Proverbs and other passages like Proverbs 2 and elsewhere, you can see, again, Solomon frequently speaks of the, the genuine value of wisdom. And it's important to understand in all these things that Solomon is not just speaking hyperbolically of, of the value of wisdom. This is true in his mind. Wisdom really is worth that much. It really is better than gold, better than silver, because with it comes this satisfaction, with it comes this greater understanding of, of life's purposes. 
Understanding that focus, then, when we come back to Ecclesiastes 11, I think it's safe to, see it, to say that, that Solomon is ultimately concerned about investing in these eternal matters, of seeking out to not just increase your profits, financially speaking, but to seek out more wisdom, to pour your resources, and that will actually create not a bigger bank account, but, but more wisdom, more knowledge, more understanding. In that vein, you can consider just the idea of investing not just in, in, again, money, but investing in people, seeking out that which will cause other people to grow in wisdom, that which will cause people ultimately to see God more clearly. Once again, looking at Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 2, then, the idea here is investing in a variety of resources, seeking out the best possible means to not only grow in your own wisdom, but also help others grow as well. Whether you speak of financial investments or spiritual investments, though, the, the same basic advice is true. It remains the same. It is this advice to make sure you are using those resources wisely, making sure that you really are investing. And this is all well and good, of course. But as we consider our investment options, all of us at some point in time will come face to face with a certain danger that sits before us. That is a certain threat that we all face. Because Solomon will examine or consider here in the following verses, these investments will not always work out. There are very clear risks involved, and these risks can be quite terrifying to us at times. But as we continue on in our text, we we come to the second point of encouragement, which is this point that says, do not fear that apparent risk. Look back at the text with me again, if you will, and, and see the risks of which he speaks. Verses 3 through 5, there Solomon says, If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth, and whether a tree falls towards the south or towards the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Or sorry, he who watches the wind will not sow, he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Having spoken to just the the basic act of investing, Solomon acknowledges that there's a variety of outcomes to all of your investments. Those outcomes, we know, can be basically boiled down to apparent failure or success. We'll speak to the more positive outcome first, that of success. As Solomon speaks to investing, say, financially, and here we see the imagery of farming, we understand that there will be those times when we guess right, when we choose the right thing to invest in, when we choose the right place, the right time to plant any given crop, and much to our satisfaction, we will see the rain fall just as it was predicted. We will see the wind blow just as it was predicted, and we will see ultimately the fruit of our labor. History is full of examples of people that, that strike it rich, that, that seem to, to predict the future quite accurately, and so they invest in just the right resources, and as a result, they make out like bandits. In a somewhat similar fashion in our own lives, whether it's financial investments or even spiritual investments, there will, by the grace of God, be seasons in which you experience seems nothing but success. I don't know how many of you are in that season right now, but hopefully some of you have experienced that at some point in time. And we will experience those moments when, when, say, we invest in someone by sharing the gospel with them. We step out in faith and we say, okay, I know this is important, so I'm going to do that. And much to our shock, they say, yeah, yeah, I believe. 
and they confess Christ as Lord right then and there. That is an incredibly successful investment that you've made. In the same way as we walk alongside each other in discipleship, we will invest in certain people that that will bring great return. They will love God, they will serve God, and, and we will be encouraged by their growth. As parents, perhaps many of us have considered the difficulty of investing in our children, that is to say, trying to raise them up in the ways of God. We do so with the language of of passages like Proverbs 22 in mind that tells us if we raise a child according to the way of the Lord, when he is older, he will not depart from that path. And we think, yes, Lord, please, Lord. And by the grace of God, some of you have seen that happen. You've seen your children follow down the path that you have laid out for them. We could go on and on and see other examples, but, but you understand that there is some success in this life. And by the grace of God, I pray that all of you have experienced this success at least in passing. But along with that possible success, there is also the possibility of at least apparent failure, isn't there? Again, time does not suffice to demonstrate the countless other numbers of people who have invested financially and come to great ruin. This happens all the time. Because as Solomon describes, the wind does not, fall, or does not blow where it's supposed to, the rain does not fall when it's supposed to, and as a, as a result of these things, the crops don't grow. And that which you've invested all your resources in seems to be a complete waste. In a far more painful manner, you of course might experience this in your spiritual investments. Again, when we talk of evangelism, when we talk of, of following after God, oftentimes our language kind of makes this false promise that things really will work out great. That is to say, you will see a return on that investment. Share the gospel and you will see someone come to Christ. Parents, raise your kids up according to the Lord and they will walk down that path. Um, Singles who want to be married, just stay true to Christ and God will provide that perfect spouse for you. Whatever your vision of success is, it's easy to presume that it will come if you are just faithful enough. But again, Just as there are countless examples of people that experience financial ruin, so too when we think of spiritual investments, we will experience apparent failure. Regardless of how faithful you are, you might not see the fruit of your labor, at least not in this life. Parents, be as faithful as you possibly can, obviously. Yes, strive to raise your kids according to the Lord, but they might abandon the faith. And that's not on you. Their ultimate rejection of Christ is not your responsibility. You can only do so much. In the same way with spouses, we can love our spouses, love our wives, love our husbands in a way that that is honoring to God, but that does not guarantee they will love you back. It does not guarantee that you will see the return on that type of investment on those relationships. The fact is, is that we cannot guarantee the outcome. And again, looking to Ecclesiastes 11, we see a number of reasons why that is the case. The number one reason, of course, and this comes into to passages like 11.3, is that we cannot predict the future. Whether that is on the financial markets or spiritually speaking, we have no idea what the future will hold. I assume that this late in the year of 2020, this does not need any, any convincing, does it? No one anticipated what we've gone through this past year. And if you have anticipated it, that's amazing. But my guess is none of you did. And as a result, a lot of people have experienced a great deal of loss because we simply cannot predict the future. Again, Solomon uses the example of of farming, that that imagery of agriculture that would have been so familiar to his audience. 
And there are times in which, which farmers experience this, and some of you in here know this very well. There are times when the weather patterns do not follow that which is predicted, and as a result, this one county might receive gobs and gobs of rain, but just one county over, it might be bone dry, and as a result, their crops dry up, and they find themselves in financial ruin. In the same way, when it comes to our own spiritual investments, we cannot guarantee the way God will act. Jesus Christ himself says this when, when describing the work of the Holy Spirit. You can see a famous example of this if you turn to John chapter 3. In John 3, we have this famous interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus, a Pharisee. Nicodemus is seeking out Jesus to try to figure out how to gain this blessing. He's trying to figure out what it is exactly that Jesus is offering and specifically how he can guarantee you to be a part of the kingdom of which Jesus spoke. And picking up in that conversation, we can read these words in verse, four, in verse 3. Having asked Jesus how someone enters into that kingdom, Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. This language is quite enlightening, especially in light of the fact that Solomon himself speaks of that same unpredictable nature of the wind when it comes to agriculture. And just as the farmer cannot guarantee that a storm will not come through and destroy his crop, so too we cannot guarantee where the Spirit of God will move. That is to say, where the seeds that we plant, where the investments we make spiritually will come to fruition. These things all fall according to the plan and the sovereign hand of God. You can make all the plans you want in the world, but as Proverbs 30 says, it is ultimately God that directs our steps. The results are in his hand. Just as we cannot predict the future, our reality or our, our futures remain uncertain because there are times when there is growth, but, but we simply don't see it. This is so frequently the case, and again, something that Solomon himself describes. Look again, if you will, at verse 5 of Ecclesiastes 11. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. In the same way that you cannot predict the future, you also cannot guarantee, uh, also cannot guarantee to know what's happening even in the present. Solomon here uses the powerful example of, of a baby forming in the womb of a pregnant woman. This type of imagery is picked up on, uh, by the psalmist and David in Psalm 139 as well, a psalm many of us know by heart. Speaking to that same mystery in Psalm 139 verse 13, David said, for you, God, formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were, all, were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Now, of course, in the days of David and Solomon, there was no technology that allowed them to see inside the womb. 
And so the, the natural formation or the ongoing formation of a child in the womb truly was an incredible mystery that they could not possibly understand. But of course, we live in a day and age where we've made all these medical advancements, haven't, haven't we? And so it might be easy to assume that, that, well, we can see what's happening inside. We can know for a fact, but, but the reality still remains is that it lies well beyond the understanding of, of medicine even today. There is still this, this miraculous concept that is that's being played out, this, this beautiful work that only God fully understands. Only God understands the moment that life begins at conception. Only God understands every detail that is being carefully put together throughout the course of the development of that child. And so as we compare that to our own investments, only God can tell you whether or not your investment really is working out in the present. Again, think of the example of parenting and the investment that you're making in your child. It might seem like all is ultimately hopeless. Your child's not picking up on anything and yet God would be able to tell you that in that child's heart, he is at work. I saw this all the time in youth ministry. And I pray I see the same results as a parent now with two young kids. But as a youth pastor, there were always inevitably those kids that I thought, oh my goodness, I kind of wish they would stop showing up to youth group. I say that as an ex-youth pastor, right? I, I assure you, youth, Andy's never thought of that of any of you, right? But there were those kids that, that I would teach and I would watch and I would think, oh my goodness, they're asleep. The room is 20 people and they honestly think I can't see that they're asleep. I would talk to these kids week in and week out and I would swear up and down that they are not learning a thing. And then suddenly something would happen. They would go off to college and suddenly I would hear, oh, they're doing great. Oh, they're, they're, they're plugged in and they're growing. And, and, and I would talk to a parent and the parent would say, oh, you know, he really loved youth group. He really learned so much. And I would just smile and nod and I would halfway tell the truth and say it was great having them, right? But I would think all the time, really? They were learning. I had no idea. That's because I couldn't see their mind. I could not see their heart. I could not tell you for a fact who was growing, who was not. The same thing is true with parenting, with any spiritual investment. You can never know for sure. And ultimately, as we'll speak here in a moment, I think this is an encouragement to us. And because even in the midst of apparent failure, there might be ongoing success. But as it stands, when Solomon speaks of our investments, we understand that, that we cannot guarantee that success. You cannot be certain whether you're investing in the right people. You're not going to be certain if, if you're investing in, in the right resources, if you'll see any sort of return, at least here in this life. And as a result of that, this this process, this discipline of investing can seem very, very intimidating and quite, quite terrifying. You see the inevitable temptation that arises out of that uncertainty there in verse 3 and 4, again, speaking to that tendency. Solomon says, If the clouds are full, they pour out rain on the earth, whether a tree falls towards the south or towards the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. There in verse 4, you see this, this perhaps somewhat surprising action or lack of action that a farmer in this case is, is guilty of. Having said uh, or having spoken to the inevitability of, of rain falling somewhere or wind blowing somewhere, he describes this farmer who in essence is, is standing back, examining all that's going on before him and just waiting for that perfect time to plant his crop. Just waiting for that perfect season to, to place his crop where he thinks it will be most fruitful. 
And while Solomon says you cannot possibly predict where rain will fall or wind will blow, you can predict that if you fail to sow a crop, that, well, you're not going to have a crop that ever grows. doesn't matter how much rain falls. doesn't matter where the wind blows. If you fail to act, the future will bring nothing. This obviously is a reality for farmers as well as for any financial investor. If you do not put money in anything, then, then of course you cannot expect any sort of return. But it's also true for us spiritually. And this, this temptation to become frozen by uncertainty is just as real in the spiritual world as it, as it is in farming. I mean, consider it in the, the line of, of evangelism. Consider how many of us are terrified to actually step forward to share the gospel with someone. I think all of us can relate to this, can we not? We think, okay, God, could you please make it abundantly clear when it's time for me to share my faith? Right? As a kid, I don't know how many times I prayed that God would literally just have someone say, hey, Ben, I know you're a Christian. Can you explain what that means to me? That was my prayer over and over again. And God really didn't answer that specific prayer all that frequently, right? Because that's not the way it works, right? But I prayed for that, that clear understanding of when it was time to share the gospel. And of course, when that is our assumption, when that's what we want, what happens? We don't share the gospel. Because those perfect opportunities are rarely going to come up. And if we're not sharing the gospel, then of course we're not going to see people come to faith. We're not going to see God using us in that way. You see the same tendency uh, in, in so many Christian circles when we also can stand back and criticize the world around us. We can look at how other churches are serving the community and we can say, ah, they've lost sight of the gospel. And we can critique their methods, critique what, what they are doing, how they are speaking, and we can stand back and say, I'm glad we're not that church. I'm glad I'm not in that circle. And we can pat ourselves on the back as we judge the ill-fated efforts of others. And of course, in the process of being constantly critical of other believers, we oftentimes can fail to realize, oh, we're not doing anything either. Oh, we're, we're not actually active. We're not actually serving. We are doing nothing more than them. We're just standing back and criticizing others. This critical inactivity, I think, is incredibly common today in our culture. When there's so much infighting of, of how to do this, how to do that, that, that the, the task that's at hand Making disciples is actually being ignored by many. Again, I think in terms of, of counseling and Christian ministry. And I think of, of how many times I see a, a Christian couple over the years who has all the truth in front of them. They know what it means to be a godly spouse, a godly husband, a godly wife, and they'll come in week after week. They'll ask great questions. They'll talk about something they've seen other friends do and, and how terrible that marriage is. And then week after week they go home, they don't actually invest anything in each other. They just continue to study, they continue to think, they continue to ask questions. But there's no actual activity there. There's no service, there's no love that is taking place. And as a result, of course, they're reaping nothing in that marriage. They just continue to see fruitless relationships. Jesus himself spoke of, of the reality of this, this inactivity, didn't he? He spoke of the fact that this is not just true for, for those immature Christians. This is a constant temptation before us, that temptation to not invest. Consider parables like that in Matthew chapter 25. If you would turn over there with me, for you see just how, how bluntly Jesus speaks to those individuals who fail to invest. 
Matthew chapter 25 and verses 14 through 30, Jesus tells this famous parable of the talents. We don't have time to read all the way through this entire parable, but many of you are familiar with it. It's the story of a master who entrusts his servants with a certain amount of resources. He leaves, of course, assuming they will put those resources to work. And as he returns, he finds that different servants have brought about different levels of return. One particular servant failed miserably. And we'll pick it up here with that last servant who's done absolutely nothing. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 24, Jesus speaking says, And the one who had also received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I do not sow and gather what I, where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore take the talent away from him, give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more, who has more shall be given, he will have an abundance, but the one who does not have even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The imagery Jesus uses here ought to astound us. I certainly think in the original context, this is shocking language for Jesus to use. But in this language, he, he's speaking to, to the seriousness with which he calls his servants to act. And, and the basic concept in parables like this is that those who truly understand that which has been given to them, those who are faithful servants, will naturally then invest those resources. They will naturally seek to bring back gains on their master's investment. Sadly, there are many of those people, however, who are prone to stand back and do nothing with it, who are frozen by fear, frozen by uncertainty, and, and it's easy for us to convince ourselves that this is optional. It's easy to begin to think that, that spiritual investments, that evangelism, that that spiritual growth is left to the professionals, or that I'm just one minor servant. I, I'm not old enough. I do not know enough yet. But, but time and time again, we're told in Scripture, no, no, no. No, God has given you all that you need. Invest. Share. Go out and do that which you know God has called you to do. Dear believer, as we've seen time and time again in the book of Ecclesiastes, the person who sits back at home just gaining a few fun facts week in, week out, is not the wise person, that is the fool. The wise person is active. In the case of Ecclesiastes 11, the wise person is out investing that which God has given to them. We do live in an unpredictable world, it is true. You cannot guarantee the success of any investment, but we do know if we do nothing, we will reap nothing. And so we must look past that risk, we must seek to actually be active in our investment. And again, at first glance, this seems utterly terrifying. Because how can we possibly know where success will be found? How can we possibly know what the return on our investments will be? And that is where the final and perhaps most shocking point of all comes into play. For as we finish our time, we are told, I think, ultimately to take courage and certain unchanging truths regarding this practice of investing. Throughout this text, and I think 
importantly, throughout all of Ecclesiastes, throughout all of Scripture, anytime God calls us to make these sort of investments, anytime God calls us to be active, He is not calling us to just prove how great we are, how smart we are. He's not calling us to predict the future. He's calling us to remember just basic truths that will always remain constant. The first truth that must be remembered in the course of investing spiritually is the fact that it is ultimately God who is sovereign over all of these things. We've said this time and time again, but again, it's worth noting. When Solomon says that you cannot know where the rain will pour, you cannot know which way the wind will blow, you cannot know how the, the child is formed in the pregnant woman. He's, he's right. You can't know any of these things, but who does know all of these things? God. And he doesn't just know them as some passive observer who's able to see with x-ray vision into the, the womb of a pregnant woman. No, he, he sees this because he's active in every single thing that happens on earth. God's hand is actively pushing things forward, directing everything. He is not the watchmaker who has set his creation in motion and sits back. He is active. He is the director. He is the artist. He is the author. He is the caretaker. And so he is sovereign over the wind. He is sovereign over the rain. He is sovereign over every investment you make. And so when you pour your time and resources into a person and it fails, you do not say, oh, I have failed God. You say, no, I've done what God has told me to do and God just chose to, to not bring that to fruition. When you pour your resources into any, any, any asset in this world, you do so with open hands, knowing that God is sovereign and he will do whatever he wants to do. Again, it is he who will bring success. As we do that, then we ought to think of language like that used by the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 55, there God's speaking of his word, of his own will. In Isaiah 55, 11, God says, So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Every, every jot and tittle, every detail of God's plan will be performed perfectly. It will be done so by his own sovereign, omnipotent hand. We can take confidence in that. We can take courage in that because it's not up to us. In the same way, a second unchanging truth that we can take courage in is the fact that that our calling, believers, is simple. You are not called to be an expert in day trading. You are not called to be a brilliant theologian who can just speak with beautiful words and convince even the most hardened unbelievers. You are a day laborer and nothing more. And when you're called to invest, you are simply called to do that which is simple and that which God has put before you. Paul is someone who, who certainly understood this calling in, in his own life. Listen to how Paul describes his calling in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul describing uh, what he does. Let me see here. 3 verse 7 through 9. Actually, we'll say 5 through 9. As Paul compares himself to others like Apollos, he says, What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed even as the Lord gave opportunity to one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God is causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. 
Again, Paul is not trying to go out of his way to sound all humble. He understands his role is that simple. He waters, another person plants, God ultimately causes the growth. As believers, so frequently I think we can be caught up in this woe is me mentality. Little old me, what can I possibly do? But God says you can do everything. That is to say you can do everything I've called you to do. Brother and sister in Christ, don't wait for your opportunity to get in front of a, in front of a bunch of, of people to share the gospel. Share the gospel with whoever God's put in your life. Uh, don't wait for the opportunity to, to teach some adult Sunday school class. Volunteer to work in the nursery. It's just as important. Mothers who are at home raising your kids, don't feel as if your work is somehow less worthy of the kingdom of God. It is just as vital to the kingdom of God that you disciple your kids accordingly as was the work of Paul in preaching in Corinth or Ephesus. It is just as important. The Bible is clear on this point. That all of us ultimately stand on the same ground. We are all equal in terms of our service. All equal in terms of our importance. Again, I, I looked at the example of the Apostle Paul as someone who, who exemplified this understanding. We talk about this frequently in our Sunday school classes. We have begun going through 2 Timothy. But it's worth mentioning here as well. You and I can often think of Paul as the super apostle who did great deeds. I mean, Paul, who, who could possibly compare themselves to Paul? And yet the Apostle Paul, again, just as he compares himself to a day laborer in 1 Corinthians quickly speaks of the powerful work that other people do. Quickly is pointing out the value that other people bring to the church. Consider the examples that he points to when writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Speaking to Timothy, that precious saint that he is leaving behind. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 3 through 7, he says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. Here's the key. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it is in you as well. He goes on to encourage Timothy in his calling. Did you catch those heroes of the faith that Paul references, those great giants who stand as, as these, these greatly praised figures in church history, Eunice and Lois, remember them? No, of course you don't. Maybe some of you do because you've read 2 Timothy, but most of us don't. They're nobodies, except in the mind of Paul. Because those nobodies, that grandmother and that mother, were responsible for raising Timothy up in the faith. And as a result of, of their service, that Timothy then hears the gospel that he's raised in the faith, and it's as a result of their work that Paul's able to praise, of course, the work of Timothy. Throughout the letters of Paul, you see numerous examples of this. Epaphroditus, others who, who in no way get referenced in church history classes, but in Paul's mind are just as important as every apostle of every great hero of the faith. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God has likely not called you to some grand and glorious thing that will bring you great renown. But even if no one hears you sharing the gospel, or even if no one, I should say, writes your name down in the history books, you can be certain that God sees your work and he counts it as, as honoring to him. Just as Paul saw himself in lines of Moses and Solomon, and just as he saw Timothy in that same line, so too we are are in that same line of investors. 
And so we fulfill our basic calling of being a good spouse, of loving our wife, loving our husband, discipling our kids, being a good employee, investing in the church, building up the community, and we do so because that is where God has placed us. And finally, as we do this, we ultimately take courage because as simple as this work is, as basic as your investment is, you are guaranteed that the end results will be beyond your imagination. Beyond your wildest dreams. This is the constant promise of God throughout his word. We invest with all of our heart because it is a sure thing. This is something we can never say about any financial investment. The kingdom is a sure bet. And so just as Jesus speaks of it in the parable of the sower, he says that the return will be a hundredfold. Your basic act of sowing seeds of the gospel will return astronomical ends. Paul, again speaking to the same idea in Galatians chapter 6, says this in verse 9, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Believers, do you, be, do you believe this? Are you this confident in the kingdom of God? I think far too often in our daily actions, we reflect far more confidence in earthly investments. Far more confidence in the things that we feel like we can predict day in and day out because the kingdom of God just feels too, too disconnected from this world. And yet time and time again we're told in Scripture, no, that is the real world. That is reality. That is the sure bet. And to choose to invest in anything that, that perishes in this, with this world is utter foolishness. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, we can take courage knowing that these things are certain. That your calling is simple. We can take courage in the fact that even if we cannot predict the future, even if we fail miserably from time to time, God blesses our work in the eternal kingdom. And so the question remains, what are you doing with your investments? For those of you who are outside of Christ, I assure you that whatever you're investing in will fail you miserably. And you might make millions on this side of eternity. But you will be damned to hell for all eternity if you do not invest in the gospel. It will all perish with you. It will fail you terribly. And so I pray, unbelievers, that you place all of your hope in Christ for he alone can provide. He alone can save you. He alone can take you beyond this realm of the son of which Solomon speaks of in Ecclesiastes. And so please, today, unbeliever, place your faith in Jesus Christ. If you have any questions about that, please seek me in the lobby afterwards. Talk to somebody about that today. Do not waste another moment. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, let us re-examine where our current investments are found. Where are you placing your hope, believers? We have a political uh, election coming up, if I'm not mistaken. And there are some of us that are perhaps guilty of placing far too much hope and investing far too much in political figures. Where are we placing our hope? Where are we focusing our time? What are we investing in? Let's make sure that we're not investing 
all of our resources in that which is temporary. Let us make sure we are not investing in that which will perish. But let us invest in that which is eternal. Let us be quick to share the gospel. Let us serve God where God has placed us. And let us be courageous in our work for Christ, knowing that the returns are certain, knowing that our work is honorable. And let us rejoice because of that future promise, because the returns will come. Believer, what are we expecting? What are we attempting to do with our investments? The great missionary William Carey, before going to India, in one of his most famous sermons, is quoted as saying, expect great things, attempt great things. Again, this doesn't mean you need to go to India, although maybe some of you do. But brothers and sisters, let us expect great things and attempt great things in the mundane, in the day-to-day life. Let us invest in that which is eternal and do so with great joy, knowing that the returns are certain. Let's close our time in prayer. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for today. God, we are not guaranteed a future. We're not guaranteed any return on any financial investment we make in this world. And we cannot even be certain of the return we will see in this life on spiritual matters. But God, what a blessing it is to know that we can be guaranteed the ultimate return that we see in your kingdom, God. I thank you, God, that you've not called many of us to do great and mighty things in front of great crowds, but you've called us to do that which is simple. Might we take courage in that? Might we learn to expect that which is great because we know that your sovereign hand is at work in all of this, God? Might we all invest all that we have, all that we are, in that which is eternal, and might we all do so eagerly looking forward to that day when we might see that great return, not simply of our investment, but the return of your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, come back today, please. But might we be faithful investors as we await that return. It is in your name we pray these things, amen.